Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that gives you an up-close and personal look at the world of cybersecurity. All right, hello and welcome to No Password Required, a podcast dedicated to exploring the minds and personalities that make up the field of cybersecurity. I'm your host, Ernie Farrasso, and as always, with me is Jack Clabby and Pablo Torres. Before we go any further, let's talk about who we have on the show with us today. On the podcast today, we're going to chat with Dan Burke, the cyber practice leader at Woodruff Sawyer, one of the largest insurance brokerage and consulting firms in the U.S. Dan is a positive-minded family man who believes every day is going to be the best day, and the next shot will always be his greatest golf shot. Speaking of people with a positive mindset, Jack, Pablo, how are you? I, this gives us something aspirational. I, I, I want to think I'm the lawyer with a positive mindset. I think we have a bad reputation out there, and I'm going to reset things today. You know, I got to tell you, Jack, I don't understand why people would think you're, you're on the downside of things, man. You are, you're like the card-carrying member of the Positivity Society, which, Pablo, you are a founding member. I mean, I have to say that, you know, we talk about positively, positively. It's, we are a beacon of hope in an otherwise dark world. We don't deal in FUD here in our cybersecurity uh, Well, I, I'll tell you, I think the, the only downside is that, you know, I have, I'm a cybersecurity response lawyer. And so I get calls from clients and they say, hey, Jack, great to talk to you. And I say, great to hear from you too. And I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Because almost every time they call me, it's, there's a problem. <laughs> no one's like, hey, Jack, yeah. calling you because everything looks good. We haven't had any alerts on our systems and there's no ransom being demanded. Just wanted to tell you to and keep up the good work. <laughs> yeah, look, Jack, I was just saying, you know what? I said, you know what? I haven't talked to these. I haven't talked to Jack Clyde. So that's why I feel very fortunate. Maybe it's just because that, you know, we get to see that side of you where you have to, <laughs> you're like the, you're like the emergency room doc. You only see the, you only see the problems. You don't see the good side of no, humanity. That must the be The ER doctors, it's a shift. Their shift is over and they're done. I think I, I tend to only get the calls when I'm there in the weekend. But I will tell you this though, you want to be the one getting the call. That's what's fun. It, it is fun to get those calls because you know you can help. And I think that maybe is what makes the job a cool one and one that I like. I think one day when I retire, I'll stop getting those calls and uh, then I'll start feeling bad. I was going to say, I'll call you. Thank you. you so at the office, you know, I think you need, you guys need to have like a fire pole <laughs> that, you know, when the call goes out, you can come down the fire pole, the, the incident response. <laughs> I, I think, I, I think you should do it regardless if you don't even we leave a, the office. You just go down we to do the second We do have a bell floor. we ring sometimes. We have a bell we use for if you if oh, you nice. ring something, you can ring the bell, uh, which is good. But, you know, I think that's one of the things we want to talk a little bit about today is, you know, when you have a win, do you crow about it to some degree? And so we've been talking yes. the last couple of weeks, I think like everybody in the community has been about the Colonial Pipeline uh, incident. And there's a million pieces of it. But the one we we have been talking about came out of this great article, I think it was in the MIT Technology Review about sort of the two ways of dealing with um, when you're aware of a vulnerability in the exploit itself, or when you know of a way of fighting back against a hacker uh, who's in the middle of a campaign. And, you know, the story that the, the MIT Technology Review um, article told was about Bitdefender, which is a pretty well-known antivirus company that had sort of a early 2021 announcement that it had made a breakthrough. It had found a flaw in that ransomware that the dark side folks were were using at the time to freeze up those networks. Uh, and I think they thought 
that they were doing a service right to to the community that was out there, and they thought by exposing this flaw, they were making it more likely that uh, the bad guys' efforts would be thwarted. You know, but what the dark side folks did was they took in that intelligence, and they you know posted you know thank you very much to the folks at Bitfender Bit, uh, Bitdefender for helping us fix our issues. And so they took it uh, and they then made their ransomware more effective by closing the loophole that the folks at Bitdefender had, had talked about. And, you know, there's no right answer to this, um, but the contrast there was to the, there was another group of researchers who had found the exact same uh, sort of flaw in the dark side ransomware. And instead of publicizing it, they were sort of quietly going about their business, helping folks who were hit with it. And I think part of that discussion is, all right, you know, if you're these other researchers, it's, it's Fabian Wozard and Michael Gillespie, according to the article, you know, those other researchers, you have to know how to find them. So it's a little bit like the A-team. Uh, and, and I think that yes. was where Bitdefender came out in, the, in, in Bitdefender's position, as I understood it from the article was, you know, what if you don't know to call these specific researchers and you're just a, a regular company and you don't have these contacts? And so I can see it going both ways. And, you know, er Ernie and, and Pablo, I just, you know, what do you guys think about this? Is there a right answer to this? Well, I'll tell you, that's, so it's funny you mentioned that. That's in, in my previous live, that's what we dealt with a lot was, you know, sources and methods and how do you, how do you, quote, sanitize the information so that you can get it out to who needs to know in a manner that doesn't uh, compromise the source. And then in some cases, uh, you know, you the, one of the classic stories, I don't know if it's urban legend or not, is about when they cracked the Enigma code in World War II um, and the convoys crossing the Atlantic, they, 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 would, they would only, quote, save a certain percentage of the convoys because they didn't want the because they knew that if they, if they had saved them all, the Germans would know that they're reading the, yeah. reading the messages and so they would change it. Yeah. So uh, again, I, I, how true is that? I, I don't know. Uh, but it's that same thing. It's exactly. It's how do you, how do you come up with a way that, okay, you've identified a, a vulnerability in this, in, this, in this ransomware that can be exploited to, to protect people? How can you share that with people without letting the, 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 the attacker know that you, they've got a vulnerability in their system? So that's, I, I, yeah, there's no right answer. I think um, in this particular case, uh, I can't fault Bitdefender for yeah. doing it because you know what? Hey, guess what? At least, at least you're gonna put a you're gonna put a, you're gonna stop that 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 bleeding, and you know because maybe they would pick up at it, yeah. maybe they wouldn't. You can't control what Bitdefender does, but you're trying to do the rest. They make it aware to to yeah. everybody. Um, yeah, that's right, and get the word out about it because to some degree, I mean, look these um, these bad actors when they're operating at a high enough level are aware of the success rates. And they're aware that if their stuff is decrypted without them having provided the decryption uh, key, that it had to have come from somewhere, somewhere sophisticated, and they're going to be able to, you know, often look at that and figure out how it was happened. So they're going to be able to, I don't know what reverse engineer or whatever the term is, they can sometimes do it on their yeah. own. And so you don't lose too much by publicizing it. I mean, there were, I mean, over the years of doing this, uh, since I've been in the private sector, there have been a number of really interesting forensics tools that have come and gone. And there were some, I remember, that were associated with, again, all on the private side, some that were associated with figuring out maybe where a bad guy had gone in an email account that was super useful. Mm. And then one day it wasn't there anymore. 
And I still ask that question anytime I talk to a, a, uh, an incident response vendor. I say, do you have anything that would help me know where a bad guy went in a Windows environment? And their answer is, oh, man, that was awesome, wasn't it? We <laughs> did. It was so cool. And they had a couple of different yeah, tricks for that. And, and that's you know, not, a present, not, not presently uh, something I'm aware of occurring. So if you're listening to this and you have a tool, it's Jack Clabby. Look me up and, and, and call, call me up and tell me you've got it again. Because I contact yeah, please. the show. Care of, <laughs> care of Ernie Ferreressa. Yeah. <laughs> but that's it. I mean, because you you know nothing gold can stay. Right? If you have something that's really good, that's right. and Its advantage is it is catching a bad guy. The bad guys will eventually figure out it, it if it's good. It, if it really is good, it's going to get figured out. So you, yeah. you don't have a, str- a long shelf life for a lot of these tools. Yeah, and that's that. I think is the challenge is it, is the speed at which all this this can happen. What do you got, Paul? I would have to say, I mean, uh, with with the Bitdefender story, I, I understand why they want to publicize this, and it, it's to reinstill confidence within what I'm going to really group into the supply chain management. And uh, let's take into consideration all these institutions and all these corporations and all these different distribution hubs who rely on technology to get things from point A to point B. They're concerned that their business model is going to be impacted by some ransomware group or some just APT group or just a group of uh, prolific hackers who are just looking for a payday. Um, they're, they're concerned that this is going to disrupt their operations. And um, having Bitdefender publicize that, hey, look, we were able to crack this. We were able to find a way to stop this this nefarious group from from targeting these, these high net worth companies and uh, allowing business to continue um, is, is only going to stoke the fire a little more. And it's going to make it so that these groups are going to take that information. The work was already done for them on the back-end testing. They're going to further refine, come out with a 2.0, a 3.0, and a 4.0. And then they're going to start testing 2.0 until it gets caught. And then, hey, guess what? We have a backup for that one, too. And we're going to keep on continuing the madness that we started. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens the, with, with the game of cat and mouse. Um, do, do I at all fault Bitdefender for, for sharing this information? Absolutely not. I understand that re-instilling the confidence in the society and in the community is good. But um, I, I think it's only going to push that line a little further. And um, we're, we're only going to be exposed to a little bit more uh, volatility within the cyber world. One of the things I, gotta, I have to wonder is, let's go back to the uh, example would be the Eternal Blue things that were going on. Uh, you know, so when they finally make that out, they publish this out. They put a bunch of CVEs and IOC, all this. They publish it out there. It is like now it's in the news. Hey, this is a big vulnerability. Yeah. You need to fix it. And just what happens? It was it not patch yeah. comes rolling out like a year, a yearly, yes. a year later, and just takes in these these <laughs> vulnerabilities that were known about. So that's where I, I I I think about it. You know, on that side of it as well. It's you know you know people can jump up and down and say, hey, Bitdefender, you guys you guys leaked this. Well. Well, hey, 88% right. I'm making that up. 88% of the people aren't going right. to do anything with it anyway. So the you know the, the those that do are going to it's going to benefit that the rest of them are are on their own. They're not paying attention. It's always it's, yeah, so it's I always wonder. unpatched Windows 98 servers in the basement. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh thank you much Oldmar. What? Oh, never mind. Did I You're say always it's yeah, it's, it's always like how <laughs> you had this expensive security system in your home. How did the bad guys get in? We didn't turn the security system on and the front door was unlocked. Just, that's right. That's right. We left the door open. What? I'm sorry. I, the, the thing I like about this the best, though, is that you you have, again, allegedly nation-state-sponsored actors, Alleged- allegedly nation-state-sponsored yes. actors on, on the one side who have extraordinary skill sets, 
resources, manpower, and, you know, the national pride, again, allegedly national pride on the line. But yeah. on the other end, you've got like balkanized, fractured groups of independent, some private sector, some university-based researchers in the U.S. trying to deal with this and, and, and in Europe. And so like, the, I, and I, I hope, and I don't know, but I hope that in addition to the guys we're reading about here, you know, and we're, ta- we're chatting about here, there's also like rooms full of folks in uniform in America, like also trying to fight back. I, I don't know if there are or there aren't. I just really, really hope that there are. Yeah. I have to yeah. believe that uh, that the, from both sides of the coin, the, the offensive and defensive side, that there are, uh, not, I don't want to say legions because uh, that implies a yeah. lot, but there's a lot of people uh, doing these types of things. Um, and that's why I think you see some of the debate about, but, well, we can't really respond here and there. But of course, it is the federal government and they're wrestling with things. The, the part that is good is, is you do see more actions being taken now. Uh, and, and I'll be interested to see how we go because I, I think we're, you know, for good or for bad, we're starting th- these types of things, ransomware, you know, cyber. It's been, not, it's now, it's, a, it's literally an everyday thing where you see something big being taken offline. The pipeline, the pipeline was one. I personally would have thought that it would have been the, uh, the beer people. Yeah. I would have thought that would have had us up yeah. far more up in arms uh, than, uh, than the pipeline. Uh, you know, and then, and then what do they do? What do they go after next? Bacon. You believe that? <laughs> the meat packing plant. I mean, you're, you're talking, you know, it's right. really? Really? They're thinking, what are, what are I mean, those what Americans with these like? People? What are those Americans like? Bacon. Let's go after yes. this. Coffee? You know, what are they going to do? What they the heck? Cut off the Starbucks supply. I, oh, yeah, that's man. right. I, Bacon and Starbucks? But that's what gets you know, The hope is what? it's galvanizing that, that you know, by going after this sort of symbols of, what yeah. is the, um, the hot dogs and pickup trucks? You know, those are the two other, like, that's as America in apple pie yeah. factories. You're going to come after that. Well, you know, that's what, that's where I'm going to look to, you know, Pablo, what is, so like my, me, I'm the guy with the gray beard here. Yeah. You're hitting, if you, if you, st- if you stop the charcoal supply, you stop the, the beef supply, which you're working on, you're, you're already getting the beer. Uh, I mean, heck you just ruined my weekend. Oh man. Let me, let me tell you this. I mean, it, it could get worse if they uh, potentially Take away the possibility for you to watch anything on TV. Yeah. So. Uh, oh yeah. Let's, let's you know that that's, yeah. Goes. That would that would be really yeah. difficult. But what would yeah. be? Most, so it, not, I think it's um it pay by the minute scooters, right? That's what I think for your generation, Pablo, maybe would be <laughs> would be most devastating if you can't get a lime scooter. I, I would be I would be distraught. I I think I would have to call my therapist or something if that happened. You know what would be even worse? Is it you you. It, it has a way that it, it you go halfway to your destination or halfway between there and back, and it stops right there and says, "Oh, if you want to get back, go to where you're going. It's going to cost you." And actually, let's let's give let's give those uh, nefarious people some ideas uh, because you could do that, right? And you know, small change. It's you know you're gonna you're gonna make up uh, in volume. So how many of those scooters are there? A couple thousand. Couple, Bam. couple thousand. And how many of those scooters you are know? operating with the QR code? I mean, several. Yeah, that's right. Scooters. So <laughs> now, now you just and you just you just have a little thing that's running in the background. Wasn't it? Was it Superman three, where they were just rounding the dollar up and we just run that <laughs> yes. off there? I mean, come on, that's there you go. Yeah, I, look, I it, I think it it is a difference too between if it's. When Bitdefender finds out about this through their own research too, they they you know they make yeah. the choice. I, I get it has an impact on the public good and it could be pro or con, but it's not as if they're compromising, you know, a a source who's undercover somewhere 
We're, we're not talking about yeah. using that kind of intelligence. And I, I, we get it That's that right. there are things out there the government has that are of a much different set of equities. But that, but yeah. when we rely on the private sector to do this protection, that's going to be the consequence of it, that you're going to allow this sort of thing to – you're going to allow the private sector then to control access to that. If we're, if we're relying on the private sector yeah. to protect us, you know, it's like if you had a castle in the old days that was owned by the king, but like certain parts of it were really controlled by, I don't know, like a merchant or something. It's just a different it's, – it's a weird thing where we rely on individuals for national security. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's going to be, that's an interesting, that's for the, uh, the, the new cyber czars or what they call it. The czars, um, did they get a hat? They should get a hat. Big, one of those big, <laughs> big Russian hat, you know, czar hat. Um, I don't know if there's such a thing. Alleged, but, uh, a, allegedly that's Russian be some, czar hats. Allegedly Russian czar hats, right. Correct. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that'll be interesting to see how the new, uh, the new administration starts to shape their policy and move forward. Because I think there's a lot, uh, there's a lot going on and a lot uh, a, a lot that's going to you know flesh out here in the next couple of months. And even since the last time we spoke about this or any, and the last time we talked about it was when the initial set of sort of cybersecurity controls was starting to be developed and announced by the mm-hmm. by the White House as applying to federal government contractors more recently and sort of as I think we predicted there was an announcement a couple of days ago from the White House that you know, even though this guidance is going to apply only to uh, federal government contractors, we strongly encourage everyone else to follow it. Yes. And so, it, yep, that's yep. how it's going to be. Dot, dot, right, exactly. At some yep. point, you know, maybe it'll become a law. But it is funny how it, you know, we're going to start with all the federal government contractors, but then we're going to encourage, nudge, push everyone else to to go ahead and do that. So yeah. that's a, that's an evolving standard. It'll be interesting. And, we're always happy to happy to see evolving standards and norms get put out there, uh, but it would be good, I think, if there's some you know industry specific uh, contours to it, so we're not all protecting ourselves with the same wall. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's going to be interesting going forward, just how this all shakes out, um, because right now, uh, you know, depends upon which way you're leaning. Uh, more government regulation, less government regulation, because we're seeing what happens when you when you have you have none because it's people are saying the government's got to be doing something. And the government says, well, what do you want me to do? Well, we don't want you to yeah, do that. True. Well, we want you to do so. Oh, okay. So <laughs> what it is, what it is and figure it out. I mean, just was it uh, last month, two months ago, the FBI, they, uh, they went out and patched a bunch of servers <laughs> in private companies. Uh, they, uh, they did it on the up and up. They, they, they got a, I want to say they got a court yeah. order and uh, to go do it. And they just, they went and did it. Uh, <laughs> Could we use that as the example of uh, a, a, a drowning swimmer? And they, they went and saved the drowning swimmer? I don't know. Um, but it'd be interesting to see if that's – because theoretically, that shouldn't be the norm. They shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but all right. With that said, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll talk to Dan Burke about his passion for solving problems and his journey from studying economics at University of Wisconsin to his current role at Woodruff Sawyer. Currently, his day-to-day responsibilities include developing – tools to help clients and prospects understand and quantify their cyber exposures. Have an idea for a guest or topic? Send an email to info at nopasswordpodcast.com. Okay, welcome back. Our guest today is Dan Burke, the cyber practice leader at Woodruff Sawyer. Welcome to No Podcast Required. Thanks for having me. Pumped to be here. Happy to have you. Uh, From what I can tell, 
Uh, we have uh, Mr. Jack Clavy to thank for your presence here today. Um, so I, I, I'm excited to you know to hear this story, and uh, I'm sure Jack is is equally excited. Don't thank him yet until until we're done. Probably that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so you, yeah, you may know Dan Burke from his Burke's Bites. His his pod, his uh, his presence on LinkedIn is pretty powerful. Uh, but he's uh, he's well known throughout the cyber insurance world. It, Dan, tell us a little bit about just oh, we have a lot to get into with you, but just give us the window dressing at this point. Just how tell us about your background and how you ended up in the role that you have at Woodrow Sawyer now. Kind of just walk us through your story a little bit. Yeah, sure. So uh, my background is is insurance, right? I've, I've been an insurance guy my entire career. Um, I started right out of school in Chicago and. and you know, it, it's as simple as when I showed up on day one, they said, go sit over there. And over there happened to be the sort of errors and emissions, cyber liability insurance group. And so as an underwriter at a company called Ace um, in Chicago, they're now known as Chubb. Uh, and, and really, that's where I got my start. I, I showed up day one and, and sat over there and, and started learning. Uh, and so spent two years with them in Chicago underwriting professional liability cyber risk was pretty nascent at that time this is back sort of 2006 right the, the california data breach notification law was really the only thing driving any kind of uh, interest in cyber risk and uh from there in 2008 i moved out to california to san francisco with ace sort of uh took an underwriting role with them in california allowed me to focus a little bit more on the technology sector uh, being that was you know based in the Bay Area, and then in 2011 I left and, and I joined uh, Lloyd's of London syndicate known as Hiscox. Uh, and so with Hiscox, it was focused entirely on cyber liability and technology errors and emissions. Uh, again, based in the Bay Area, focused on on tech companies. And at the end of my time there, was sort of leading the the cyber liability and, and tech product in the U.S. Sort of writing writing policy forms and underwriting guidelines and training a bunch of people on sort of how, how to think about cyber risk, how to really assess it and, and what, what things are key in sort of understanding companies and the risks that they face. From there, I, I leveraged that into uh, moving to the brokerage side. So I joined Woodruff Sawyer, uh, which is a full service insurance brokerage firm based in San Francisco, uh, where I lead our cyber liability practice, uh, where we we help companies understand their risks that they face from a cyber perspective, whether that's data breach, privacy issues, or operational risk, um, and so all, all the way from you know insurance or not even insurance, but uh, technology startups, biotech startups, through sort of the Fortune Fortune 100 um, size companies, and, and sort of understanding cyber risk and ultimately transferring that through an insurance mechanism. So Dan, a number of our listeners are cybersecurity professionals and don't work with insurance except occasionally when it's paying for sort of first party or third party response. Can you just at a high level explain the difference between an underwriter and a broker for how the insurance market works? Sure. So uh, a broker is the sales guy, right? A, a broker is the one who's trying to get you to buy stuff. Um, but really they're the intermediary, right? Between you and the insurance carrier who's actually taking on the risk. Uh, so the underwriters are the, the, they work on behalf of the carriers. They assess your risk. They try to quantify it. They determine what controls you have in place. And they're the ones ultimately writing 
you're writing a check at the end of the day uh, if there is an issue, if, the, if a ransomware event or some other type of, of claim happens, the underwriters and the carriers are the ones paying for it. The brokers are the ones that sort of bring the expertise and the knowledge base and, and the understanding of the insurance community uh, to the table that helps you, one, present yourself in the best way possible as a, as a company who's looking to buy insurance, uh, and two, make sure that you're, you know, you're not, not buying something that's not going to respond. Um, and so you want to make sure that you've got somebody not only understands the coverage and you know, that it's going to work the way it's intended to work, um, but two, knows market well enough to, to put you with the carriers that are going to, to pay when they're supposed to pay. You know, you recently you blogged that about nation state actors uh, are behind some of the largest security breaches, and then it's the private sector that ends up paying the costs. Um, yeah, can you can you elaborate a little bit more on that and and how that is because I I I I believe you I mean that uh, uh but I'd like to hear you know your thoughts on a little bit deeper in that yeah it's pretty crazy right if you think about some of the the attacks that are happening around the world right so um, the Colonial Pipeline attack right is major infrastructure piece for the United States the whole Eastern Seaboard is you know uh, on a hunt for gas for a couple of days because they had a ransomware event. Well, that's an attack coming out of Russia, right? Allegedly, I'll, I'll say allegedly to, to not get your podcast in trouble, but allegedly coming out of coming our, out our of, podcast in trouble for a great many other reasons. But that's <laughs> I was like, it could could have been uh, anyone. It could have been anyone. It could have been it anyone. Russians that could is have been anyone. in Russia, and you know, uh, maybe Belarus, right? But it so could be. it's it's coming out of Russia, right? They're clearly harbored by countries that have no interest in enforcing you know criminality around these attacks. But there, and it's it's done in a way to destabilize certain certain elements of either the U.S. economy. Uh, we saw it in the NotPetya attack, destabilizing the Ukrainian economy, right? So there's just all these attacks, and it ends up that it is the private sector that's paying for it, right? So it's it is you know Russian government, Chinese government, North Korea sometimes, uh, where where they're they're launching these attacks, they're destabilizing certain sectors of you know, some some Western government or Western economy, right? In in this case, the United States. And it's a private company, Colonial Pipeline, who's got to pay $4.4 million in Bitcoin to make it all go away or to make it better, right? And it, and ultimately, you know, it's the insurance community who's insuring a lot of these companies that are that are paying ransoms, cyber ransoms. Um, and, and thus, you've got the private sector really fighting this, this what is a modern day war, right? It's modern day warfare. Mm. Is is you know there's no more tanks lining up and and shooting at each other, right? Um, it is a lot of this you know geopolitical strife that's happening is done over in cyber warfare, and so it's it's the private sector that's ultimately paying for the damage caused by this geopolitical you know strife that's happening, and I think I think it's it's really interesting when you look at it in that context, right, around how is it that we can expect an insurance community to keep paying these losses when it's really, you know, these nation state actors who have more resources, more funding, more everything, more technical ability to launch these attacks uh, and it really commoditize it in, in such a great way yeah. that, you know, it, it makes it very damaging and, and thus, you know, the private sector is, is footing the bill. I, I think it's really interesting. I, I think there's been a lot of calls recently in the insurance community, in the, in the, in the government sector, even around a public-private partnership and sort of some sort of federal backstop for 
the way there is for for terrorism insurance, right? Around mm-hmm. um, you know an insurance solution to support companies as they go through these problems, and you know it, it's a problem. Ransomware is a problem, yeah. right? It, for for every company, for insurance companies, it, I mean. There's a high-profile insurance company who, who allegedly paid a very large ransom amount um, for their own event, right? So it's 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 been a problem, and it's a really interesting dynamic to me around this dichotomy of of federal governments or nation-state actors and and private companies that ultimately pay the price. Is that something when you think about all right, a new client to the brokerage? You know, Woodruff Sawyer is talking to a tech company that could be considered critical infrastructure because it provides cloud services or it helps with telecom versus, you know, an internet-based retail company that has risks to, you know, personal data exposure, account takeover, payment diversion fraud, but isn't going to be, you know, targeted by a nation state actor. I mean, that seems to me like you've got the nation state actor targets, you've got the pipelines, the energy producers, the tech companies, and then you've got everybody else where it's just personal information. Do you try to bucket it in some way? Are those risks different to you? Do you think of it in those terms, Dan? Uh, I mean, you can think of it in those terms, but I don't bucket them differently, right? And I think it's actually one of the biggest misconceptions about cyber risk that exists, right? Is that like, oh, I'm not a target. Like, why would mm. why would a nation state be worried about me as a target? They're not. Like, they're not worried about you, but they're going to hit you if you've got weak controls or if, if you're the low hanging fruit, like you're going to, you know, you don't have to be the fastest person, but you got to be faster than the slowest person. Yeah. Right. Um, and so if you've got those that low hanging fruit, you're a target. And and frankly, many of the actors out there harbored by nation states, supported by nation states, but really, you know, they're not out there to cause geopolitical issues. They're out there to make money. And Darkside, who was behind the colonial pipeline attack, came out and said it. They're like, we are apolitical. We just want money. That's all we're here for. Um, now, they have since shut down and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, many, much of that money from the colonial pipeline was allegedly recovered by the, the U.S. government, which is a whole can of worms that I don't know we need to get into. But, uh, you know, it, it's just there's this misconception out there of like, uh, I'd never be a target. Yeah. Right. And we run into it all the time. It, it used to be that companies that didn't have data would say like, Oh, we don't have a ton of cyber risk because we don't collect personally identifiable information. Right. We don't collect credit cards. We're good. And, and I think one of the things that, that ransomware has shown every, every company out there is that they are so much more reliant on technology to operate their business than they probably thought. And that reliance on technology is cyber risk. Right. If, it, if that technology fails, your company shuts down for a little while. Can you survive? Right. Can you can you withstand you know, a week, two weeks, a month without revenue coming in the door because your network was shut down? It's like the, the CPA firms that five years ago you know, decided we're going to stop using email right, to communicate with one another, with our clients, because we're collecting too much PI and email. We're going to move to the cloud. And they solved yeah. one problem. And now they're entirely reliant on a third party service. And they're now exposed to ransomware in a way that they weren't before with segmentation and daily backups. So it's, you're out of one and into the other. Yeah. There's no, there's no good solution, right? Like at some point, cyber risk just exists for every company out there. And, you know, I'll, I'll say it until I'm blue in the face, but, you know, I I can, I can, you know, you can lead a horse to water. You can't force it to drink, right? Like I can tell you all about all the risks that you face, 
at some point you've got to want to do something about it. And, you know, unfortunately I've run into scenarios where we're, we're, you know, pitching a client or we're telling them about their cyber risk and they just, they choose not to insure it. They don't see it. It doesn't resonate with them. And then they call us back, you know, a couple of weeks later, Hey, we've got a ransomware incident. Can you help? Do you think we're at a tipping point? Um, you know, in where we're at with, with this, because I mean, in the past, I mean, it, geez, I don't know, it's just at least a year, probably last six months. I mean, you're starting to see so many high profile. I mean, back early on, you'd call them quote, business disruption events. Um, and now we're just calling it, it's really, it's ransomware. Their entire businesses are being shut down. I can remember talking about this, I don't know, three, four years ago, where people are saying, you know, the same type of story. Well, I don't have any, I don't have any data. But people aren't coming to steal your data. They're coming to steal your business. Yeah. They're going to shut down your business. Um, and, and so do you think we're, 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 we're getting to that point where, it's, uh, where, where companies are starting to realize it? Because it seems that the federal government is starting to get its head around it. You're starting to see a little bit more. But I, I don't know. Uh, where do you think we are? Are we, still, are we still swimming upstream? Are we still you know, fighting the... The, the common good, well, I'll just write a check for it uh, after the fact. Or... Well, so so uh, I, I kind of have the opinion of like, how can we not be at a tipping point, right? I mean, the, yeah. the I don't think what we're seeing right now, I, I think there's two things happening, right? One, ransomware has been bad for a while and probably going back two years, right? It's been pretty, pretty bad. High volume of attacks, uh, the demands going up, right? And we've seen that in the insurance community. I think the insurance community sees a lot more of it then certainly gets publicized in the press. I think the tipping point that happened was one colonial pipeline drew a ton of headlines, right? And you talk about a gas shortage on the yeah. East coast where media organizations go nuts over anything on the East coast. And I say that as a proud West coaster now, <laughs> uh, where I like to show. but it, you know, it's something happens in the East coast and it just draws a ton of media attention. And so, you know, that hit a nerve, right. And, and, the federal government sort of got to a place where they had to do something. Um, and I think it's really interesting. They're being so public about their response. And it's, you know, it, politics, what have you, I don't, I don't know what's driving it, but they're being very public about what they've done in response to this this act, um, Colonial Pipeline specifically, uh, and, and in ways that I don't think they have been in the past, right? Certainly the FBI has been very involved with the ransomware for years um, in, in sort of counseling companies through through their response and getting engaged when it when it happens um, and so to me it, it's just really interesting like it has to be a tipping point because there's been such a forceful response and I think they're trying to send a message you know if I had to guess you know I don't I don't think they're they're being public about this in the hopes that it just goes away forever but I do think they're sending a message of like all right enough's enough yeah. right like we're not just going to sit here and take this all the time especially when you hit critical infrastructure you know, we're we're gonna we've got some capabilities too, and I, I you know, it's it's super interesting to me that they're being public about it. Um, but it's got to be a tipping point, certainly from a media perspective. The last two weeks have have been crazy amount of news stories that mention ransomware. Um, it, it feels like you can't you can't sort of turn around without being hit in the face with another uh, article about you know what to do when ransomware strikes. Two years ago, Dan, that you mentioned, I mean, that was when, at least in our practice, we started to see the extortionate ransomware, where it wasn't just lock up your system and, and pay us to free it up, but it was lock up your system, pay us to free it up, and we won't post this data that we took from you to the internet for everyone to see. That extortionate piece 
you know, that was associated with seeing seven-figure, eight-figure ransomware demands, which were really not something that we saw three, four, five years ago. It was brand new. And I always thought the response to that, you know, the FBI, you know, they would respond and Secret Service would respond if money went out the door. But there was always this idea that it was a law enforcement response, which is sort of silly because you're really going to go and arrest these guys where they are. And at least one thing that's been nice about the, I don't know, about the public making public the colonial pipeline response is that you get the sense it's not just law enforcement, that there are other aspects of the U.S. government that are getting involved here. It's really not um, the kind of thing where you're going to lock these guys in a local jail. It's got to be something done at a national security level. Well, and that's what I think was was interesting is we're starting to see that. Um, uh, yeah, that, it, that it's going beyond that. Uh, I, I saw an article today that said that that the the federal government is is mulling over uh, military options. Uh, for Everything's this. on the you, table, right? You know, that's right. Well, you mentioned that. So the the dark side folks said, uh, you know, hey, listen, we're we're uh, we're only in this for the money. We're not political. We, part of it goes back to, hey, dark side, uh, you don't get to decide that. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, that that totally. decision isn't isn't solely up to you. Um, you know that. Uh, uh, I so I think that I think it's interesting. It'll be it'll be certainly interesting to see how it plays out um, because it's, it's really one of the things, you know, to kind of take it to another, a little bit other direction is how do we, how do we get headers? Cause we're spent, we're seeing a lot now of resource expended after the fact, you know, Hey, we're all, we're all excited. The FBI went out and they, you know, they, they, or the department of justice recovered some of these, these some of the money. How do we, uh, you know, how do we get ahead of this? That it's not, Oh yeah. Hey, look, uh, the bomb's gone off. Well, that's nice. How do we stop the bombing? You know, how do we we get ahead of that? Well, it's so it's it's funny because part of like part of me thinks that like the FBI public or Department of Justice publishes that they got the money back. It's like just creating these false expectations for my clients now that like yeah they're gonna want their money back too. It's like well, I, you know, this has happened once in the you know, how many. <laughs> thousands of ransomware right. cases we've seen, right? So like, let's, I, I think we should temper expectations somewhat. I don't think we're always going to get the money back uh, is, is sort of one thing I'd say. The other thing I, I, I think, you know, there's been an ebb and flow to ransomware, right, over the years. And I think to Jack's point, it, it started originally as like, hey, we'll lock up your systems, pay us, you know, WannaCry asked for like 300 bucks. Like what a wasted opportunity that was <laughs> for them. Um, but so it's like, you know, 300 bucks, fine. Like give me my system back. And then it became sort of like, oh, you know, I'm just going to ignore you. I'm going to restore from backup. I don't have to pay your ransom. And so then it became, all right, well, now we're going to go encrypt your backups. And so then it's like, all right, well, now we got to figure out some other defense. And it was like they, they found another way around not paying. And the attacker said, all right, well, now we're going to steal your data. So if you don't want that to get out, now you got to pay us for that, too. And so it's just been this ebb and flow. To me, you know, this is a this is an ebb, right, of, of the, the government getting involved, fighting back. There will be a reaction that comes. There's some other way that this is going to come back. And I think, you know, one of the things that this has done, it, frankly, it's highlighted how profitable ransomware is for all mm. these bad actors, right? So, I mean, there's someone said to me earlier today, you know, there's 7 billion people in the world, right? And they're all seeing how much money these guys are making. Like, there's more coming. Like, it's, it's not going to go away forever. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think I have a great answer for like what's next. How do we, how do we put the bomb back together, right? I don't, I don't, I think it's, I think the bomb has gone off and, and it's going to be here. It's going to be uh, uh, happening for a long time, but there's probably an equilibrium that exists mm. 
around, you know, somewhere between the three hundred dollars from WannaCry and the, you know, forty million dollars that uh, uh, someone allegedly paid a few months ago. So what I worry about yeah, that's what I worry about is that the making public to the bad guys that you can get the money back is just going to allow for more lag between if you do make a payment and when you get the decryption, you know, they're going to wait longer until the Bitcoin clears or whatever you want to say. It's not going to be an instant communication. And I think then you're going to have, maybe that's the goal here is to just ruin it totally. And, if it, you know, the this idea too that the federal government's going to start looking at companies that pay ransoms for violating Bank Secrecy Act, right? And for violating yeah. treasury. Um, yeah. You know, th th that, that aspect, I, again, we get, I get it. I get that the government's trying everything, but I, I, I don't believe that the criminal justice system is the right way to do this either way. I think the government needs to start treating it like something else. And we've started to see like secret service will help and not even really open a file. Sometimes they'll, they'll, you know, they've got investigators now who are really third parties to them who help with payment diversion recovery and they'll do it in a way that, you know, it's, it's not like they're getting subpoenas and things. They're just sort of helping on the back end. And I feel like that's the direction the government should go in if they want to try to help is, you know, cause you get the scenario where you can get us, you know, if, if you have a client who has a, a diversion of a payment or a ransomware and it's a hundred thousand dollars of loss, they'll investigate, but you have an attempt at $40 million, but no actual loss. And they're like, nah, we're not going to come out of it because no one's lost money. You're like, it's $40 million. Yeah. They tried to get $40 million. Yeah. Help us. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, it's like a foiled bank yeah. heist. And, and yet, and yet well, nah, I wouldn't worry about that. I'm sorry, what? Uh, what, yeah. what do you see, like, Dan, when you, I mean, how, how much of what you're doing now when you talk to new clients or renewals, how much is ransomware and then how much is the other stuff? Is ransomware just dominating the conversation now? It is. And it, it, it's, you know, it's, a little concerning to me, actually, because there's there's more out there, right? There's more to cyber risk than just ransomware, right? If you think about, you know, the wave of consumer privacy regulation we've seen from GDPR to the CCPA in California, Virginia just passed a law. I think Florida tried to pass a law but couldn't agree on the private right of action, right? I, so there's a whole other shoe to drop, I think, uh, there around the private right of action, around these privacy laws that... To me, it's it's what I'm talking about a lot right now, right? Trying to open people's eyes up beyond the immediacy of ransomware and the risks that are present there, but sort of what's coming down the down the pike. And um, I mean, that's a big one that I'm I'm focused okay. on is the privacy issues, particularly for consumer focused companies. Um, it's a, it's a pretty big risk that exists there. Now, speaking of privacy issues, you know, what do you do in your private life? What do you do to uh, walk away? from this insanity that is going on in the world. I heard somewhere, actually I could see in the background, it appears there's a map with a flag in it. And I'm assuming that flag has something to do with a golf course in Georgia. It is a golf course in Georgia, Augusta National, uh, which I've been to once. Uh, did not, not to play, unfortunately. I'm not good enough to, to be a professional golf player um, or to know enough people to get access to that course, I suppose. But uh, went to a practice around there. I do golf. I love golf. Um, not very good at it. Uh, I'm perfectly average is how I would describe my, my golf game. Uh, but yeah, I, I do that. I do some, I try to stay, you know, somewhat physically active. I've got two kids, uh, with a third on the way. So I'm chasing, hey, well, congratulations chasing there. little ones around. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Uh, coming, coming in July, another, another baby boy Burke running around. 
Um, so we're uh, we're chasing kids around, um, and and that's that's well, about it. See, that's pretty good though. That's 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 that'll keep you at least active. On the Augusta, Georgia thing, if you want to chalk it up to a work-related trip, uh, it that is the U.S. Army's Cyber Center of Excellence is in Augusta, Georgia. Is it really? It is. It is. It's actually a go. big. Uh, there's a big uh, uh, national security agency presence there as well. So if you happen to be in that area, you know, and and I know if one thing I know about army guys is they like to play golf. That so might explain. Go out there and, that might explain all the security around Augusta National. Like maybe there's a tie in there, right? Is there? Hey, there's some connections that are probably helping them. Uh... It's always been a cover. It's <laughs> yeah. a big cover for one of the, those <laughs> those things. The secrets in the golf tees. Exactly. It's exactly. in the golf tees. So when we've talked before, you talk a lot about happiness and, you know, what you can do in your career and your personal life to sort of optimize that. And and it's something you talk about with others. Just, you know, in your view, sort of not to ask too big of a question, but what is that key to happiness? What is that key to balance for you? So uh, balance is actually a really interesting word to me, right? Because I think for a long time, I've heard this like work-life balance thing and it's supposed to exist. And it feels hard when you're young and and trying to establish a career. Right. And then COVID hits. Right. And me with young kids, uh, you know, this whole work from home thing has been incredible. Like work-life balance might actually exist at this point uh, where I can have lunch with my, my daughter because she's, you know, not in school yet uh, in the middle of a a work day where I'm otherwise, you would have been out and about going somewhere or or like on an airplane. Right. So I think that's, that's actually interesting. um, you know, I had someone ask me recently, like, what's, you know, what's your best day? What's been your best day at work? And my answer was tomorrow. Like, you know, I, I just think my, I'm an optimist by nature. And so to me, uh, tomorrow, the, the promise of tomorrow is just so huge. And, and to, so I love what I do. I think it's really interesting. Uh, insurance probably gets a bad rap from, from so many people, but it's been an unbelievable career for me. And I, I think I've carved out this small little niche in the cyber insurance world that I find super interesting. And I, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, I'm excited to, to help people, right? That's a, a big thing of mine is, is just helping people. Um, so to me, the, you know, tomorrow is, is always going to be my best day. And Dan, you know, just to say a word about the cyber insurance market, I mean, you and I know each other through my brother, Patrick, uh, Patrick Clabby, who's, you know, does a lot uh, at Chubb and, you know, again, kind of came up with you in terms of helping build the industry a little bit in the last maybe 10, 15 years in cyber. But he, he's described it to me as, you know, if you, some people like insurance, some people don't, but when you go to the Lloyd's of London building in London and you see they have the original boards up and it has the names of the ships that cross the Atlantic and you want to say, you know, you're not getting the new world if you didn't have insurance because these ventures that we go on are so risky and they're so extraordinary that we have to share it with others. Uh, and I think cybersecurity and, and sort of the unknowns for it is a good example of that. And I think Patrick has articulated that and you probably feel the same way that these things are so risky that it is good to share uh, in insurance. At least the insurance yeah. market lets us do that. Insurance powers the world, right? I mean, it, it really does. Like companies wouldn't take the chances to do cool things if they didn't have somebody to, to sort of be there when they failed. And I, I, I just think that's a, gr- a great perspective uh, on the insurance community. I love it. Uh, it's been, it's been a great, great spot for me to be. And I think that's a great uh, analogy 
you know, taking it back, if we look back in time, you know, nobody goes to the new world without insurance. Well, here we are in the 21st century going into the new, the new space of cyberspace, and we don't go into cyberspace uh, without insurance. All right. Well, after a short break, we're going to return with Ernie's lifestyle polygraph. Stay with us. You are listening to the No Password Required podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. Okay, welcome back. Dan, are you ready for the Lifestyle Polygraph? Let's do it. All right. For those of you who don't know, the Lifestyle Polygraph is a series of questions designed to probe the inner workings and minds of our guests in the federal government space. These are used to determine people's suitability for access to national security-related issues. But for us, it's just to make our guests slightly uncomfortable and tell stories about their life. So here we go. First question. First question. All right. If you coached a high school football team, a high school football team, which part of your team would be more feared, the offense or the defense? Offense or defense? So it's an interesting answer because I'm a fan of two football teams who are very much not known for their offense, the Chicago Bears and the Wisconsin Badgers in, in college. Three yards in a cloud of dust, right? <laughs> uh, and yet... My answer is going to be offense because I played offense in high school. It was my 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 thing. I just see it, I think, a little bit better. So uh, offense would be my answer, even though I, I have yet to cheer for a team that really can can move the ball uh, the way modern offenses should. Watch out! Watch out for Justin Fields, though. Okay. <laughs> All right, number two. Number two, a difficult question. Difficult question, especially uh, for someone. Your background, Happy Gilmore or Caddyshack? Caddyshack, got to be Caddyshack. Uh-huh. It's just such a classic, and it's I, you know, I go on this golf trip to to Bandon Dunes every year, and every year it's it's you know on the shuttle up to the resort is like they're playing Caddyshack in, in the van. Um, it's great, so definitely a Caddyshack. Caddyshack. That's one of the <laughs> movies where if you watch it. Uh, you know, like on an HBO style versus if you watch it edited on TBS, the experience is remarkably different because you forget yeah. <laughs> just how filthy it is, like in its pure form. After years of watching yes. it on, you know, standard cable, you encounter it in the wild again and you're like, I didn't remember any of that. Uh, yeah. I, I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't remember any of that. We, I, I think, don't you aspire to be the judge there, Jack? <laughs> Mario pal, Danny? Hmm? Mm. The one I think about the most, though, is the pool scene all the time. When That's they true. finally drain the pool and it's sitting there. Yeah. At the, I'm not going to ruin it. it for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, but it's a, it's a great <laughs> scene. Spoiler alert. Spoiler Jack, alert. That's right. Yeah. Spoiler alert movie. from the 1980s. It's been like 40 years. Yeah, yeah, Happy Gilmore, right. you know, it doesn't have the staying power. I think about the Bob Barker scene a fair amount. That's yeah. the one I think they yeah. nailed. I remember seeing it in the theaters and laughing out loud at that scene. Well, you know, that's something to think about. So. Uh, you know, I'm not an avid golfer. Dan, you are. The, the Gilmore putter. I, I mean, is that, can you just walk out there with a, you know, with a hockey stick looking putter? And, and I mean, would you be fine on the greens? I know they do the, what is it, the two-handed putter, or, but does that, that doesn't seem like that should be uh, allowed in, uh, you know, in gentlemanly play. I think that, I think there might be some rules. I'm not, again, I'm not like I'm, I'm perfectly average at golf, so I'm not playing competitively enough to like know what all the rules are around putter styles. But 
I do know that Odyssey makes a version of the Happy Gilmore hockey putter, hockey stick putter. Um, I don't, you know, I think it's like a novelty kind of thing. I don't know if anyone actually bought it, but I've certainly seen pictures of it. Yeah. So how would you feel if you're out there, you know, you're, you're, you're stepping up to the first, you know, you're out there, you drive it, you have, you know, hell of a drive, you set it right, right on the green, you're up there, the guy you're playing with comes up and he whips out his putter and, and bam, it's the Gilmore putter. I mean, what do I you think? It. I mean, I love yeah. it. I have, I'd have infinite questions about how he got to the place in life that he had to use the Happy Gilmore putter. I like the idea of that walk-up drive, too. Every once in a while, you'll yeah. be in a driving range, and you'll see somebody pull that off, and you think, there's got to be a better motion. That that, that just looks yeah. – it looks better than what we usually do. Like I, yeah, I know keeping like, your feet still is the right way to do it, but, man, when you see somebody connect with something like that, it's great. I've spent more than enough time yeah. on, on YouTube uh, and more recently on TikTok looking at folks uh, hit drivers that way. And it, you strike me as a TikTok. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, I, part of that, you know, I'm just trying to bridge the generations here, Dan. You know, that's it. I got to be, right, I got to be. Right. It's, it's the perfect distillation of how I like to consume things, which is just the best 15 seconds. I don't know. You know, yeah. <laughs> I just want to watch the last scene, just, just the pool scene of Caddyshack. Yeah. That's it. Then I'm done. That's Just it. Bill Murray the only one picking up the yeah, picking up the candy bar or whatever it is. Um, hey, oh spoiler, no, I did. Man. Come on, we'll edit come that on. Out you did it. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of golf, we continue. All right, here we go. Because we know, we all know uh, Jack Clabby's power and influence. So if he could get you into St Andrews, Pebble Beach, and Augusta, how would you prioritize? Where would you go first? And, and the caveat is, would you take Jack with you? That's a whole <laughs> yeah. you know, We can talk about that. but uh. He is my second favorite Clabby. Uh, <laughs> and Patrick is not first, I'll tell Just you It's good to keep him ranked. Uh, it's good to keep them ranked. And let us know. Yeah. Let us know where we stand. Yeah. I mean, you got to work your way up the ladder. Um, you got a long way to beat Christy, though. <laughs> Shout out KC. Um, I would say, you know, Augusta National, if he could actually get me on Augusta National, that's that's, I think, every golfer's dream. But to me, I've always wanted to play the old course at St. Andrews. I just think there's a ton of history there that's really cool and interesting to me. Um, so that'd be, that'd be my number one. Let's go to let's go to the old course, have a good time. I mean, it's public. I, you could play it if you're you know, willing to pay the money and, and travel all the way over there. I just haven't done that yet. I, I'm with you. I kind of would, would love, in terms of a trip, as great as it would be to play Augusta and, I, and probably move a lot of things to make that happen. I think if you're thinking about it as a trip, I think St. Andrews is the way to go. I mean, what a good time you'd have. Yeah. You'd probably get a couple of rounds in if you planned ahead, you know, get to visit and go see some places to taste some scotch. We're supposed to go before COVID oh. or during COVID. I guess COVID hit and we had to cancel the trip. But. Well, I can tell you outside of Augusta, there's nothing. It's an army base. I know. There's absolutely nothing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's well, the worst. Provides, it's the... According to us, provides security for the. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It, it, but Augusta is like the, the third worst place in the world. I can think of two. Yeah. I, I don't want to make it number one because, you know, for legal reasons. Well, then when you're coming through Tampa next time, we can take you out at Innisbrook, which is where they have the Valspar. And there's a couple of good courses nice. around here too, but that's one that, that we've sponsored in the past and, and have a lot of affection for. It's an outstanding uh, set of courses out there too. Some good Florida golf out there. We I have seen alligators on the course out there. You have to just... You just wait, and then they leave, and then you can keep playing. Have you seen the video of the professional golfer who went and like hit it on the tail, and it scurried back in the no. water? <laughs> no. 
dude, I like. Oh, awesome. All right. I'm looking forward to this. Some, 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 yeah. So listen, now we have to put the caveat now. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. (laughs) We do not advocate taking your golf clubs. Maybe if you had the Gilmore putter. Just say allegedly. Allegedly, you know, take your Gilmore putter to hustle off the gators off off of the fairway. All right, here we go. This is a good one. This is a good one. What's the best type of cheese? Best type of cheese is Wisconsin cheese, one. In a broad context, Wisconsin cheese. Uh, Very specifically, cheese from the Burke Cheese Factory, which is a real thing that used to exist. My grandfather and my great-grandfather owned Burke Cheese Factory in in, uh, Seymour, Wisconsin, which is an unincorporated town outside of Darlington, Wisconsin. Uh, And my uncle actually... Uh, through his in-law side, uh, was part of the group that that created Colby Jack cheese. If you if you're familiar, Wait, with Colby really? Jack. The, the, oh, I don't yeah. think there was a time when it wasn't invented. Oh, that's cool. Uh, it ex- that, yeah, that's a. It that's just kind of came into being. That's the a universe. 20th century invention. <laughs> uh, yeah, Colby cheese. I think goes back to like the 1800s uh, in Col- out of Colby, Wisconsin, and then my my uncle and his in-laws and, and their cheese operation created the. I think the process around um, you know combining Monterey Jack and, and Colby cheese into you know your your new favorite cheese, um, Colby Jack cheese. Well, I I would think you know, and, and seeing how Dan you have some you have some influence in the cheese industry, I, I think you should have a, a Clabby Jack cheese. <laughs> Clabby Jack cheese. I actually I, have I, you know. You know, and it's kind of ironic given that I went to school at Wisconsin, but I have multiple friends that are in the cheese business or have families in the cheese business, right? Not even not even considering my own Burke Cheese Factory family history. Um, yeah, Zutz Cheese House uh, in, uh, in Sartori Cheese, is that one still operating? Um, yeah, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of good cheese houses in Wisconsin. Well, you know, my, my kids would tell me that I'm in the cheese business. But it had to do with jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so that said, besides cheese, what's the one thing that can instantly make your day better? And you can't say talking to Jack Clavy. You can't say talking. To Jack Clavy, <laughs> that's 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 a no brainer. It's got to be my kids, man. My my kids. You know, when you just get that big bear hug from a kid, um, it's that's just like an instant day raiser, um, especially. Uh, for me, I don't know. My my daughter, uh, when she when she comes in for the hug, man, that's the best. I actually took my son to his first baseball game this, this past week, and the Cubs were in, in San Francisco, so we went to a game. And I've spent every evening before bed and every morning before breakfast playing baseball outside the backyard, which has been awesome. Um, so that's we're on day five um, of, of that. The Cubs were in town. Did you have to? Uh, you had to. Did you have to explain the the the, the saga of the Cubs? I mean, he's not there yet. Although my son, so my son was born in 2016 when they won the World Series. So I always yeah, say he's the maybe that's a sign. Track. He's the curse breaker, right? It could be it. Uh, yeah, he had yeah. a lot to do with it. I'll, I'll say. That. I, I think, you know, listen, I've got a pen around here uh, that's been keeping tigers away from me for years. I mean, I haven't been attacked by a tiger because I've had this pen. So. You know, who's to say your son isn't the yeah. reason why the Cubs won the World Series? You never know. So are you going to – I mean, sometimes these things happen naturally, but are you going to have the kids be fans of the teams that you're fans of, or are they going to adapt the 
geographic sort of teams. No, we're indoctrinating Excellent. very hard in my house. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the that's the yeah, correct I mean, answer, I think, to that question. Yeah. It's in fact one of like we some random football game came on TV and my son was like, Oh, the Wisconsin game's on. And it was not Wisconsin was not playing, but he knows when football's on, it's probably Wisconsin. That's awesome. And just tell him, yeah, it's the yeah. team that's winning. It's the Jets. Yeah, that's them. It's the Wisconsin yes. Jets. Yeah, yeah. That's right. right. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. So, you know, we're a big fan here at No Password Required of Revenge Fantasies. Uh if let's assume for this question that uh, your golf clubs are not replaceable, they're irreplaceable. If your golf clubs okay. were taken in the Liam Neeson version of your golf clubs being taken, what would you say to the thief in your sort of, in your sort of that Liam Neeson one phone call to try to intimidate the thief? Do I have, can I do the voice? Can I try to do you the gotta voice? You got to do I'm the voice. I'm not very good at voices. I'm not very good at voices, but you have to do the voice. Don't know who you I are. I have a certain. I don't know what you want, but if you don't return my golf clubs, specifically the putter, <laughs> there will be consequences. You can keep the driver, it's worthless, <laughs> everything else needs to come back. That's excellent. That's good negotiation. Yeah. That's like a ransomware. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> keep the driver, can't hit it anyways, good luck, but the putter, putter has to come back. It's true. It's true. It's like, look, we won't call the cops. If the putter just shows up, yeah. we're just going to, the trail will go cold. Yeah. We'll call it. Yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> no cops. That's true. I mean, going back to what we were talking about before with revealing the sources and methods for deterrence, like they, when they were figuring out fingerprints, I bet they probably had some hard choices to make. Do we tell these bad guys that we could just find out who they are based on fingerprints? Like imagine all yeah. the stolen golf clubs that were later recovered that that could have been traced to the thief. You know, a golf club takes a good fingerprint. I guess they had to put Is that it why they created golf clubs? <laughs> Is that why they created golf clubs? Yeah. It might be. Let's we'll talk to OJ. We're putting together the alternative history here. There's some conspiracy theories we could go down here. Golf clubs. That's right. Well, I, well, heck, yeah. I mean, again, O.J. Simpson, he's a pretty avid golfer. True. You know, remember the gloves didn't fit? True, Had yeah. to quit that whole thing? Gloves don't fit. Yeah. Must have quit. So, yeah. I don't know how that ties into him wearing gloves yeah, and I don't know. I don't murdering know people with golf him, clubs. But, but yeah. Let's yeah. <laughs> got dark. Anyway, did you, here, that's guys. right. All right. <laughs> and, and there we are. <laughs> and there we are. So... That said, Dan, thanks thanks so much for joining us. If our listeners wanted to connect with you, how would uh, how would they do that? So, as Jack mentioned previously, I am I am moderately famous on LinkedIn. I do some some short video series, uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter at at CyberDanBurke, um, and always at WoodruffSawyer.com, where I publish. Bunch of articles and videos uh, about all things cyber risk and, and insurance. I'll just say one thing too, Dan. You know, we're obviously kidding around a lot here, uh, but for those listening, you know, Dan and his folks at Woodruff Sawyer really know what they're doing, and they're involved in some of the largest and most complex placements going on today. So, as much as we have a good time here, I mean, this is a thought leader that we had on today. And Dan, thank you very much for joining us. Guys, thanks for having me. This is a blast. All right, coming up next, Pablo Torres will do his best to lock in Winston Wolf, a high-powered, no-nonsense consultant. Will the wolf come and help us mitigate a threat that is pushing us beyond our limits? Stick around and find out. There's a place for everyone in the world of cybersecurity, and Pablo Torres plans to prove it. Welcome 
to Positively Cyber. Welcome to Positively Cyber. I'm your host, Pablo Torres. Cybersecurity is a complicated business. Even on the best of days, things will go wrong. The question is not if, but when. After all, those incidents are the reason why we are here defending in the first place. On the worst of days, we are overwhelmed with zero-day exploits and the ever-present phishing attacks. On the best of days, we are overwhelmed with users thinking that a random USB stick found after the proverbial water cooler talk is universally meant to be associated with the roll-off to term plug-and-play. No. Huge. Red. Flag. Needless to say, we are perpetually overwhelmed. To deal with the onslaught of cyber attacks targeting our clients, we built a fictitious organization that is undoubtedly the envy of all other fanciful cyber firms featured on rival podcasts. Somehow, sometimes, we still run into issues that are more than we can handle. So what can we do in situations where our firm's talent is spread too thin? We could pull a few all-nighters and hope to mitigate the threats before our staff collapses on the floor. The defend until you drop technique is tempting. However, our HR team, led by the Mandalorian and Scooby-Doo, values our employees' well-being way too much to pull a stunt like that. Besides, a sleep-deprived John Wick is not something that a well-run company would like to inject into an already volatile situation. With the most apparent option eliminated, what can we do? Is there anything that we can do? Are we just sitting in the water, stuck up a creek without a paddle? In the perfect full world, we would just add staff. I wonder if Velma Dinkley's still available. Wait, 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 wait. We don't have time for that. It does not matter how many times Peter Quill tells us, be cool, honey bunny. We know that it's going to take more than what we've got. So no new staff and absolutely no employee abuse. What's left? Everything seems to be stacked against us. There's only one option. We send in the wolf to help clean up the mess that was caused by the nefarious actors. Feel better? You should. The wolf executes. Let's get down to brass tacks, ladies and gentlemen. The clock is ticking. Let us get it straight. The wolf is not here to say please. He is here to tell us what to do, and if self-preservation is an instinct that we possess, we better do it quick. He is here to help. If his help is not appreciated, then lots of luck. He'll be happy to sip gourmet coffee elsewhere. Winston Wolf brings an excellent freelance resume into the data loss prevention. With his expertise, we have to keep in mind that it's not going to come cheap. We are talking about a guy that only drinks $5 milkshakes, and when he is hungry, he isn't reaching for the affordable delicious Royale with cheese. No, Mr. Wolf prefers a more premium selection at the Big Kahuna Burger. You know, the Big Hawaiian Burger Joint? Some of his more successful adventures include protecting the rambunctious Jules and Vincent from a potentially catastrophic situation. The wolf balanced cleaning up a Marvin-sized mess with keeping Jimmy's wife, Bonnie, who is due home at any moment out of the volatile information loop. As intertwined as these tasks were, one had to take priority over the other. Like Bonnie, most people would freak after simply seeing a situation like this. As the wolf mentioned, that gives us exactly 40 minutes to get out of Dodge, which if you do what I say when I say it should be plenty. Wow. Talk about being assertive and efficient. Translate this into eradicating a malicious APT group from a client network. To say it simply, the wolf brings a distinctive edge that knows no boundaries or budget and is willing to do the opposite of what most companies would do. 
Instead of optimizing on profitability, the wolf imagines what could go wrong and then solves it. Talk about priceless. If he is curt with us, it's because time is a factor. The wolf thinks fast, talks fast, and needs us to act fast if we want to get out of this. So pretty please, with sugar on top, let us get the job done and clean up the network. Welcome aboard, Winston Wolf. Let us get down to business. That, ladies and gentlemen, was Pablo Torres. Winston Wolf. I mean, he's an I- I- icon. Just, just let's just think about that again. The statement: "If I'm short, it's because time is of the essence." Uh, I mean, he 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 is a heads up our incident response as a, as a freelance. But like you say, he's not cheap. Um, so what do we do? Do we keep him on retainer, or do we bring him in after the fact? I mean, what's the how do, how do we get the business relationship straight with him? Oh man, um, we we better have a damn good espresso maker. Um, but but all jokes aside, I, I think keeping someone of that caliber who is that meticulously proficient um, makes sense to have on on retainer. Um, it, it's it's not I, at least in my professional opinion um, sound business to wait until after the fact to respond to something that's going to critically damage your business continuity plan, or that's going to really affect your disaster recovery plan. Um, I, I think if, if you notice something and if it's something that's that bad and you have someone with that caliber of skill, it, it's best to get them engaged early. And let's go ahead and start patching up those holes or better yet, just start updating the, the software that hasn't been updated because your, your tech guy decided to go on break instead of updating Windows Defender. Yeah, and that's right. It's the, you know, you got to... The, you don't want to have to call in the wolf because if the wolf comes in, something bad's already happened and it's beyond what you can do. Um, so you don't need to have mono all, all the time. You know what I'm thinking? I, I'm thinking that we might be in the presence of our own version of the wolf when it comes to that, you know, our own Jack Clabby. Is he the wolf? Is he the cyber wolf? Because what does he do? He blows in uh, and he comes in and he starts solving problems. So, uh, you know, I, I think Jack can be uh, maybe maybe that's what we should a- ask him to do is shave his uh, his 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 goatee and have it just be a little pencil thin mustache, and, you know, and slick back what's uh, what he has for his hair. Um, I don't know. I, we'll have to see if we can get him official. Uh, no password required. You know, black blazer, white shirt, and black uh, black narrow tie. Because um, I do think he drinks fancy coffee. I think that would fit Jack perfectly and um it may, it may take some arm twisting but um i i think he definitely fits the bill i like it so i think uh you know that is going to wrap up the uh this uh this version of the show uh we had a pretty good uh good segment really great talking to dan burke uh, and, and as always good to talk with uh pablo and uh, and jack um so thank you very much for joining us i'd like to thank my co-hosts jack clabby and pablo torres And a special thank you to our guest, Dan Burke, the heir to the Colby Jack cheese fortune, and hopefully play, we'll be able to play Augusta National in the near, near future. So uh, good luck to Dan and his endeavors as he pursues golf and cheese. That said, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the No Password Required podcast and send your questions or comments to info at nopasswordpodcast.com. I'm Ernie Ferreso. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the No Password Required podcast. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. A special thanks goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields and Cognizant.
If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website, cyberflorida.org slash pod.